You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, um, tonight's kind of exciting. We have two very interesting authors tonight. I, I would say that neither neither are our usual genre authors, and both are um, exceptional. I think in their um, in the care they take of the written word. But uh, we'll talk about that later. We'll we'll begin just with our reading and then get into. Uh, there's a little bit of a departure this evening, which I think is kind of interesting. There's interesting things happening in in and out of the genre, and uh, we're sort of on the edge of it here. But later for that. Um, our our uh, first reader this evening is actually a new author, although he's been in and around the field for a while. And uh, uh, since he was scheduled here and since he came out, I think since he came out here to the West Coast, he's received a great honor, which is that he won the, is it the first Crawford Award? Uh, the, oh, just, just, oh, well, the Crawford Award for first. Right, book. but the Crawford Award is new in itself, isn't it? No, oh, no, no, it, does, it goes back a ways. Oh, it does, okay. That's how little I know. I don't even know who Crawford is, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but this is a book which is, uh, it's, it's published out of genre, and uh, uh, by Penguin, it's, uh, uh, well, I won't say any more about it. We'll talk about it during the, um, when we have our Q&A. I would like to introduce from New England, from uh, from small beer, from the environs of Small Beer Press, and from uh, the top, I would say the upper edge of the genre, Jedediah Berry, who's going to read from the Manual of Detection. Thank you, Terry. I just want to thank uh, Rena. Uh, and, and Jacob from Tachyon um, for having me here this evening. It's a real pleasure to be reading with Laurie King. Um, so um, I'm going to read a, a couple short scenes from the book. Uh, the, 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 our hero is Charles Unwin. Uh, he's a file clerk working for a large mystery-solving organization known as the Agency. And um, what happens early on is that he uh, he's, he's suddenly promoted um, much uh, you know, much to his dismay, uh, to the rank of detective, um, because he finds out that the the very famous detective Travis T. Savart, uh, for whom he has been filing case files for for many years, has gone missing, and so <clears throat> he's expected to replace Travis Savart. Um, so in, in this in this scene that I'll be reading, he um, he's in the agency office building. Uh, normally he works on the 14th floor, but he's decided to go up to the 36th floor and track down his supervisor, who he's never met. Um, and uh, try to sort this, this situation out. The corridor was lit by yellow light fixtures shaped like upended tulips, and between them were doors without transoms. At the opposite end of the hall, a single window permitted a rectangle of gray, rain-ribboned light. Floor 36, the attendant said. In the memo, Mr. Lamech had identified himself as a watcher, that title was unfamiliar to Unwin, but the intricacies of agency hierarchy could not be entrusted to just any employee. There were clerks innumerable, with underclerks beneath them and overclerks above, 
and then the detectives, those knights errant upon whose work so much depended, while everywhere at once scurried the messengers, lower in status perhaps than even the underclerks, but entrusted with special privileges of passage. For their words, on any particular day, could originate in the highest halls of the agency offices. And dwelling in those halls? What shrewd powers with what titles? On that, Unwin did not care to speculate, nor do we now, except to this extent. On the 36th floor, behind doors marked by bronze placards bearing their names, the watchers performed what duties were entrusted to them. The seventh door on the right, Unwin counted 13 to a side, bore the name he was looking for. Unlike all the others, this door was ajar. He knocked gently and called through the opening, Mr. Lonick? No response. He knocked harder and the door swung inward. The room was dark, but in the column of light from the hall, Unwin saw a broad maroon rug, shelves of thick books with blue and brown spines, a pair of cushioned chairs angled toward a desk at the back. To one side was a great dark globe, and before the window loomed a bald and massive globe-like head. On the desk, a telephone, a typewriter, and a lamp, unlit. Mr. Lonick, Unwin said again, crossing the threshold. I am sorry to have to bother you, sir. It's Charles Unwin, clerk, floor 14. I've come about the matter of the promotion. I believe there may have been some kind of error. Lonick said nothing. Maybe he did not wish to speak with the door open. Unwin closed it and approached. As his eyes adjusted, he began to discern a heavy-featured face, shoulders wide as the wide-backed chair, big, unmoving hands folded over the desk. Not your error, of course, Unwin amended. Probably a transcriptionist typo or a bad connection on one of the older lines. You know how things get when it rains, sir. Fits of static, the occasional disconnect. Lamech regarded him wordlessly. And it has been raining on and off for days now. Fourteen days, in fact. More rain than we've had in quite some time. <laughs> Unwin stood before the desk. It's a matter of poor drainage, sir. <laughs> Bound to interfere with the lines? He saw that Lamech's telephone was in fact unplugged, the cord left dangling over the edge of the desk. The watcher said nothing, and the only sound was the rain against the window, the cause, Unwin supposed, for all his talk about the weather. Unless you protest, Unwin hazarded, I'll just switch on your desk lamp for you. That way I can show you some identification, which I'm sure you want to see with, before bothering with any of this. Wouldn't want to waste your time, and you can't trust anyone these days, isn't that right? He tugged the cord. The lamp, identical to the one on Unwin's own desk 22 floors below, made a puddle of pale green light over the desktop, over Unwin's outstretched hand, over the seated man's gray crisscrossed fingers, and over his heavy gray face, from which a pair of bloated, red-flooded eyes glared out at nothing. Corpses were nothing new to Unwin. <laughs> Hundreds of them populated the reports entrusted to his care over the years, reports in which no detail was spared. People poisoned, shot, gutted, hanged, sliced to ribbons by industrial machinery, crushed between slabs of cement, clobbered with skillets, fenestrated, commiserated, <laughs> burned or buried alive, held underwater for lengthy intervals, thrown downstairs, or simply kicked and pummeled out of being. <laughs> the minutiae surrounding such incidents were daily fair, so to speak, to a clerk of the 14th floor. Whole indices, in fact, were organized according to cause of death. And Unwin himself had from time to time contributed new headings and subheadings. When an innovative murder necessitated an addition or expansion, 
Strangulation, unattended boa snake, was one of his. <laughs> As was muffins, a poisonous berry. <laughs> a man so thoroughly versed in the varieties of dispatchment might then regard with unusual ease the result of an actual murder. In this case, a man whose neck had been bruised by strangulatory measures, tongue emitted as a result of smotheration, <laughs> eyes bulged almost clear of the skull, result of the same. But Unwin yanked his hand from the light and took several steps backward, tripped over the edge of the rug, and fell into one of the thickly cushioned chairs, the softness of which did nothing to diminish his revulsion. In each dark corner, Unwin could almost see a killer crouched, waiting for an opportunity to strike. To move from where he sat would have brought him closer to at least one of them. So he remained motionless, briefcase clutched in his lap, seated as for a proper meeting with Mr. Lamet. This meeting went on for quite some time, <laughs> with only the weather having anything to say, and the weather spoke only of itself. So, um, Unwin eventually, um, he, he, he goes to his new office, he finds out he has an assistant, also uh, perturbs him a good deal because he doesn't know what to do with her. Um, but he, he eventually learns that Savart, while working on his last case, um, went to the Municipal Museum to meet with someone there. So he figures, if I can't get demoted, um, since my boss is dead, I will um, go you know, to the museum, try to track down Savart, and um, solve things that way. So in, in, this, in this section, he has gone to the cafe of uh, the, the city's museum. Oh, and I should mention, um, at the beginning of the book, he's given a copy of a book called The Manual of Detection. And this book is supposed to guide him in the, the solving of mysteries. Three men were hunched over the lunch counter, eating in silence. All but one of the dozen or so tables in the room were unoccupied. Near the back of the room, a man with a pointed blonde beard was working on a portable typewriter. He typed quickly, humming to himself whenever he had to stop and think. Unwin went to the counter and ordered a turkey and cheese on rye, his Wednesday sandwich. The three men remained intent on their lunches, eating their soup with care. When Unwin's food came, he took it to a table near the man with the blonde beard. He sat his hat upside down next to his plate and put his briefcase on the floor. The man's stiff beard bobbed while he worked. He was silently mouthing the words as he typed them. Unwin could see the top of the page curl upward, and he glimpsed the phrases, eats lunch same time every day, and rarely speaks to work fellows. Despite all that Unwin had read of detective work, he had no idea how to proceed with this investigation. He had sworn not to read the manual of detection, but he knew he would at least have to skim it if he were going to play at being a detective. He told himself he would read only enough to help him along to the first break in the case. He turned the book over in, its hand, in his hands. The edges of the cloth were worn from use. He opened it on his lap and read the title page. The Manual of Detection, a compendium of techniques and advice for the modern detective, representing matters procedural, practical, and methodological, featuring true accounts of pertinent cases, with helpful illustrations and diagrams, including an appendix of exercises, experiments, and suggestions for further study, fourth edition. <laughs> Each chapter focused on one of the finer points of the investigative arts, from the common elements of case management to various surveillance techniques and methods of interrogation. But the range of topics was so broad that Unwin did not know what to read first. Nothing in the index seemed entirely appropriate to his situation, except perhaps one entry, mystery, comma, first tidings of. <laughs> he turned to the corresponding page and began to read. The inexperienced agent, 
when presented with a few promising leads, will likely feel the urge to follow them as directly as possible. But a mystery is a dark room, and anything could be waiting inside. At this stage of the case, your enemies know more than you know. That is what makes them your enemies. Therefore, it is paramount that you proceed slantwise, especially when beginning your work. To do anything else is to turn your pockets inside out, light a lamp over your head, and paste a target on your shirt front. <laughs> the iciness that had settled into Unwin's wet socks climbed up his legs and began melting into his stomach. How many blunders had he already committed? He read the next few pages quickly, then skimmed the beginnings of those chapters that dealt with the foundations of the investigative process. Every paragraph of the Manual of Detection read like an admonishment tailored specifically for him. <laughs> he should have developed an alternate identity, come in disguise or through a back door, planned an escape route. In one case file after another, he had seen these techniques used, but detectives employed them without any apparent forethought. Was Savart really so deliberate? Everything he did, whether throwing someone off his trail or throwing a punch, he did as though the possibility had only just occurred to him. The man with the blonde beard was working quickly now. Unwin glimpsed the phrase, if he is in contact with the absentee agent, he does not know it. <laughs> Maybe he had stumbled into a lucky spot after all. He got the man's attention with a wave of his hand. Begging your pardon, Unwin said, but are you the person who met here with Detective Savart recently? The typist frowned, ground his teeth and said nothing, then plucked the page from his typewriter, stuffed it into his jacket, and rose from the table with his fists clenched. Unwin straightened, almost expecting the man to come at him, but he walked past Unwin's table and stomped off to the very back of the room where a payphone was mounted to the wall. He lifted the transceiver, spoke a number to the operator, and dropped a dime into the slot. The three men at the lunch counter had turned from their bowls of soup. They looked on with tired expressions. Unwin could not tell if they were suspicious of him or thankful for the reprieve from the man's typing. He, he nodded at them, and they swiveled back to their lunches without a word. He fanned the pages of the manual, breathing in the scent of old paper, and caught a whiff of what might have been gunpowder. He could begin to count the things he had done wrong, was perhaps even now adding to that list, but he still did not know where to begin. He still does not know where to begin, said the man on the telephone. <laughs> Unwin turned. The man with the blonde beard stood with his back to the room, one arm resting on top of the telephone, his head bent low. He spoke quietly, then listened and nodded. Unwin took a deep breath. This was his first hour in the field, and already his nerves were getting to him. He turned back to his book and tried to focus. He's trying to focus, said the man at the telephone. <laughs> Unwin set down the manual and rose from his seat. He had not misheard. Somehow, the man with the blonde beard was speaking Unwin's thoughts aloud. His hands shook at the thought. He had begun to sweat. The three men at the lunch counter scribbled again to watch Unwin walk to the back of the room and tap the man on the shoulder. He looked up, his eyes bulging with violence. Find another phone, he hissed. I was here first. Were you speaking about me just then? Unwin asked. The man said into the receiver, he wants to know if I was speaking about him just then. <laughs> he listened and nodded some more, then said to Unwin, no, I wasn't speaking about you. <laughs> Unwin was seized by a terrible panic. He wanted to run back to his seat, or better yet, back to his apartment, forget everything he had read in the manual, everything that had happened that day. Instead, without thinking, he snatched the telephone out of the man's hand and put it to his own face. He was still shaking, but his voice was steady as he said, now listen here, I don't know who you are, but I'd appreciate it if you keep to your own affairs. What business is it of yours what I'm doing? 
No response came. Unwin held the receiver to his ear, and he heard something, a sound so quiet he could barely tell it from the prickle of static on the line. It was the rustling of dry leaves, or sheets of paper, maybe, blown by, blown by a mild wind. And there was something else, too, a sad warbling that came and went as he listened. The cooing, he thought, of many pigeons. He set the telephone back in its cradle. The man with the blonde beard stared at him, his jaw moving up and down, but he made no sound. Unwin returned to his table, sat, and hurriedly began to eat his sandwich. One of the men at the lunch counter got off his stool. He wore the plain gray uniform of a museum attendant. His white hair was thin and uncombed, and his dark eyes were set deep in his pale face. He shambled toward Unwin, breathing through his whiskers while crumpling a paper napkin in his right hand. He stood in front of the table and dropped the napkin into Unwin's hat. Sorry, he said. I mistook your hat for a waste paper basket. <laughs> the man with the blonde beard was on the telephone again. He mistook his hat for a waste paper basket. <laughs> but as the museum attendant left the cafe, he knocked him to the table where the man with the blonde beard had been sitting. A glass tipped and spilled water on the papers stacked beside the typewriter, and the man with the blonde beard dropped the receiver and came running over, cursing under his breath. Unwin took the napkin out of his hat. Something was written on it in blue ink. He uncrumpled the paper and read the hastily scrawled message, not safe here, follow while he's distracted. Stop there. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.